Oh, sorry. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Let me make you moderator. Oh. Hi, Z. How are you today? We will start in around five minutes or so. Hi Denise, how are you today? Hey Katarina, feeling a little better. How's everyone else? Hey Denise, long time no here. How are you doing, mate? It's been a rough couple of weeks <laughs> having caught COVID again, but um trying to stay in good spirits. Oh, sorry to hear that man. Um, hope you feel better soon. Um, yeah, I hope you feel better soon. Hi, Eric. How are you? Thanks for coming. Hello. Can you hear me? Uh, can you hey, say something again? Can you hear me? Just. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we can hear you. Thank you. We'll start in around five minutes, if that's okay. Sure. How's your How was your day so far? Everything oh. good? Pretty good. Nice weather here, finally. Yeah, right. Took a while. How did your day finish up, Katarina? Did you get everything done you wanted? Um, mostly that I had on my to-do list. Most of it, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> mm. Actually, Serena gave me more to-do list. It's just my Absolutely there. Does that have anything to do with astrocytes? Imagine that. that. <laughs> but that's fine. That's interesting. That's good. It's a good one. Victoria so will you... also be here in a few minutes, she said, and then we can start. Also, when you get a second, Katarina, I sent you a wee message in the back channel. I'd like to hear what you, your, your feedback is on that because uh, I was wondering if I was going crazy when I was in this other room. Eh? Just want to hear your thoughts on that. Um, how are you doing, Serena? How's your day been? Doing good. The day just went by like poof, and here we are. Yeah, I know what you mean. I've been thinking it's like five hours earlier than, it's, than it is all day. Well, I'm really looking forward to this talk. It's, it's really looks it's exciting. Absolutely. This was a fun time in science when all the experiments seemed to work and, and uh, there's sort of 
few and far between, but it was it was one experience. Oh wow! <laughs> All the experience. You don't hear that often. <laughs> oh, and Serena, you really have to listen to the replay of the one that was a few hours ago. That was so good. I saw the commentary. It really looks interesting. Yeah. Hi, Victoria. How are you today? Hello. Hi, I'm well, thank you. Nice to see everyone. How are you all doing? I'm John, Victoria. How are you? <laughs> Great. Great. Feels like it's been a really long time since we've all been together. And it's all a couple of days. <laughs> it's been days. <laughs> it's too long. <laughs> it's really funny you say that. With me only being in Clubhouse like six or seven weeks, and I somehow feel like I've known you... Uh, the group for like such a long time yes we're the science so family that happens <laughs> that's really just nice so much ground's being covered. yeah <laughs> just so much ground's been covered in such a short period of time yeah that's yeah especially that's so astrocytes yeah. oh <laughs> you know it oh are yours parked up <laughs> I'm kind of hoping to bring back the tardigrade myself. Oh, and where did we put them all? Well, they offered to come the back, so they I think they would be open to come back. It, it's a while ago they've been here, so we can invite them again. Was I right for that one? I don't know if I remember Was this that the one, one where they quantumly entangled a couple of them? Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you bet. Ooh. Jamie, were you? Mm. Maybe, no, I think you weren't here yet. The first time I met you was when we had the speaker from Scotland. Glasgow. Yep, exactly, right. yep. Liz and you appeared like magic. That was unbelievable. Oh, hey, I'm from, I'm in Scotland too. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if we're going to quantumly entangle islet cells. Well, they, the thing is with the tardigrades, you can freeze them like this and then they are still alive. But yeah, with this protocol, <laughs> Eric, do you think we can, we can do well, this that? Well, you know, the tardigrade is like the ultimate in cryopreservation, so. Or do the islet cells become entangled as they develop? It's beyond my physics level. <laughs> I want to ask how you quantum untangle something else, but I've got a bad feeling that, that would actually lead to a whole other room <laughs> to just, if we started talking about that. For a Friday, perhaps. Yeah. For a yeah. short room on a Friday. Sorry, that's a joke. <laughs> Entangled Fridays. Yeah, should we start? Let's, uh, let's do it. Everyone is here. And yeah, let's start. Welcome everyone to the Science Society. Thank you for coming. 
And today we have our very special guest speaker, Dr. Eric Finger here. And he will talk about this really amazing breakthrough for diabetes. Um, my family has a lot of diabetes, like type 1, so especially interested. And um, yeah, let me tell you a little bit about um, Dr. Finger. He is an associate professor in the Department of Surgery at um, Mayo um, Transplant Surgery in Minneapolis. Um, he is a transplant surgeon. He did his um, master's at the Harvard Medical School, Boston, and his residency at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and his fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. Um, and he was also a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of California, San Francisco Diabetes Center. And his clinical specialties are kidney, liver, and pancreas transplantation, eyelid transplantation, and um, hepatobiliary surgery. Um, yeah, you covered a lot of specialties and uh, research and um, complicated medical um, surgery. So uh, yeah, it's an honor to have you here to get to know you and uh, to hear about your t uh, research today. But before you start, um, usually Victoria asks a, general, uh, a couple of general questions, if that's okay. And then the stage is yours. Thank you. The stage is yours, Victoria. Thank you very much. And welcome, doctor. I'm, I'm really glad to welcome you to Science Society. And um, yeah, we really look forward to learning about your research into pancreatic islet transplantation. I, I looked over the slides and, and they're just beautiful and amazing. And so I look forward to hearing you explain it to us and talk about vitrification, etc. It's going to be great. Um, to help introduce you to the listeners, I, I really um, appreciate being able to ask a few introductory questions. So the first one is, if you can look back through your life, can you reflect on a moment or an experience that drew you into the sciences? You know, maybe it was a class or a relative, but, but something that really set a spark that let you know that science was a place for you. Sure, sure. I apologize in advance. My four-year-old has just tried to join me and he's supposed to be- in Oh, this is a child-friendly place. <laughs> so, um, so I my sort of interest started, I had an uncle who was a plastic surgeon who did hand surgery and, and uh, my cousins and I would go and we would look at his medical textbooks and he would tell us all the stories about fingers that got cut off and the like and how they would sew them back on. And that was sort of, that was sort of the beginning of my, my interest in medicine. And then, um, but I was an engineer in college and a chemical engineering major. And then it was in a, a summer research time at uh, Lawrence Livermore Lab in, in, in Livermore, California when I saw how uh, the clinical people addressed sort of more basic questions, but had a really sort of really good basis for doing so. You know, they asked the questions, not just, you know, what is the tool we're working on, but how can we use that tool to solve some problem? And that's when I sort of saw that the combination of 
of science and medicine is, is really being something that can be quite productive. And that's sort of what began my career, I think. Mm. So perhaps your four-year-old will find some really fascinating book <laughs> and, and get, you know, feel that connection too. And I'm, I'm hearing that, that, um, your interest is in, in, in problem solving. And I'm, I know that so many of our listeners today are like you, I'm sure really interested to hear the hope that you'll bring to this rotten disease. And, and so can you share an overview of the path that led you to your current research? Sure. It's, it's really sort of an interesting one because it was a side project, if you will. So I'm a transplant surgeon and I do, you know, uh, several different organ transplants and some islet transplantation. And my research had been for many years in um, transplant tolerance, trying to figure out a way to do transplants without immunosuppression. And we do lots of small animal models for transplant to study various immunosuppression medications and treatments. And someone came to me and said that the mechanical engineers, they want to apply for a grant to cryopreserve limbs um, for people in the military that get, you know, get their arms blown off or something like that. And they want to apply for a grant to, to, to try and cryopreserve an arm or leg. And you do these animal transplant models. Why don't you, uh, why don't you go talk to them? And so I went to talk to them and I said, well, you know, it's really interesting. They, but you know, a leg has bone and nerves and blood vessels and fat and all sorts of different kinds of tissue. That might be a little bit too challenging to start. Why don't we think about something a little simpler, like a kidney, where you have one blood vessel going in and one blood vessel going out, and see if we can't um, we can't do that. And uh, it's one of those fortunate sort of sidetrack where you know we applied for a little seed grant, got a little bit of money from the university, and then got a little bit more more money from the university, and then we got our first R one, and our second R one, and then our third R one, and then a NSF you know multi million dollar sort of thing and it's turned into many many people with many different contributing specialties with uh, engineering medicine chemical engineering radiology all sorts of different people participate it's really been quite an interdisciplinary research effort yes i saw the list of names and you're and it, it is really extensive well thank you for bringing us up to present and um the way that that we do the room i'm sure you heard in your intro um however if whichever way you're comfortable if you prefer to deliver your research and then have a q a afterward that's great and if you prefer to have people asking you as you go along that's that's completely up to you in any case um the mic is yours and just to know that when people when you see people flashing their mics that's a form of applause so like that <laughs> so you know we're with you so um yeah oh, well before we begin is there an access issue with the uh, link let me go ahead and check have other pro yeah. people had a problem um accessing the the powerpoint i the PDF? was able to access it yeah it should be i checked again oh, let me see thank you serena okay. Um, Coming, doctor. I just sent out a request I, to you. Uh, anyone that is not like our regular, can Doctor Shah? Can you try to press on the link again? 
perfect. It works now. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Go team. <laughs> okay, ready? take us away. Sorry. Ready, go. Well, uh, well, well really, it, it'd be great to be informal. And certainly, if you have any questions at any point, just jump in because the slides are a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a dis discussion point than, than specific details. And and um, so I'm happy to talk about things in general terms. Thank you. Do you know that you're muted? There we go. Sorry about that. No problem. <laughs> so cool. uh, I, I probably said that. Uh, so it'd be great to just be informal. Certainly jump in at any point and ask any questions that anybody has. And um, if you, uh, you know, this the slides are sort of a, a little bit of a discussion po discussion points rather than details that need to be followed or anything like that. So certainly I'm happy to go in any direction people want to go and, and we can chat. So to start with, uh, if we go to slide two, slide two is the, the sort of the introduction to what's called the Edmonton Protocol. And the Edmonton Protocol was a paper published, published in New England Journal in, in the year 2000 by a group from Canada in Edmonton by this guy, James Shapiro and a bunch of colleagues where they sort of revolutionized the way we do islet transplantation. And islet transplantation, as you may or may not know, is you take the whole pancreas and you digest it up with collagenase and then enrich the islet. So those are the, um, you know, the collection of cells that contain the beta cells that secrete insulin. And what they found in that, that paper was by, by modifying the immunosuppression and some of the ways that they did the isolation, they were able to transplant seven patients and get all of them off of immunosuppression, um, which was great. Uh, the problems were several fold. First off, they, they had them all off immunosuppression for a year, but almost all of them were on back on immunosuppression by the following year, by the second year. Uh, second problem was that you need a fairly, fairly large number of islets to get off of insulin. There are about a million islets in the pancreas, but the process of isolating them is not very efficient. And so a typical islet yield might be 200 or 300 or 400,000 islets. And we think you probably need more like 700,000 islets to get some off, off of insulin. And so we were needing, we, they were needing to do transplants, two or three transplants or even more transplants to get people off, off of insulin. And so that required several rounds of a surgery. It's a minor surgery. In this case, they did by interventional radiology, but we do ours by, by a small surgical procedure. So two or three surgeries at least. No. Uh, and then the, then the, then the islets didn't, the, the, the diabetes wasn't quite durable enough. You get about half the patients off of remain, uh, come back on insulin and buy a year. Um, and uh, it really wasn't really durable over the long period of time. And then, and then also people had to be um, on immunosuppression medication for as long as, um, as long as the, the, the graft was working and that has a range of complications. Um, um, just gonna let my wife know. That's really sweet. <laughs> um, so, so that was a problem. So you needed more multiple procedures, multiple doses of islet. So each dose was came from a single donor, and um, and so it was it was it was a challenge for for many different reasons. And so one of the things that we thought we might be able to do would be to 
store islets for a period of time and then bank them up and then give two or three donors worth of islets at one time. If we could get more islets in, they'd be more effective. Patients would only have to go through one round of immunosuppression induction and uh, so it'd be less risky. And also it could help with protocols to try and induce tolerance. So if you were to do something to modify the immune system where you needed to start the patient off and do a treatment for a period of time and then do the transplant in a week or two or in a month, it gave you a way to, to store the islets for a period of time. Uh, so that's sort of the basis of why we do it. Why we do it. Also, the other, other thing to do is, other way to overcome this would be to, to use stem cell derived islets. That's really been a big, um, a big um, you know, current avenue of research to try and figure out a way that you could turn stem cells into islets um, and you can grow big vats of them, which is great. The problem is that not all of the batches of islets work. And so you need a period of time to, to figure out which islets are going to be the good ones to transplant uh, and, the, and the islets deteriorate uh, in culture. And so there, there was a need to be able to try and um, cryopreserve islets uh, for, for that reason, for stem cell derived islets for quality control um, measures. We go to slide slide um, three. This is sort of um, a general approach that we take. So we're talking about cryopreserving islets here, but it's just sort of more broadly applicable to, to a lot of different things. We and the we also try and cryopreserve organs for other types of transplants and tissues for regenerative medicine and things. And 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 you look at different opportunities for cryopreserve for preserving tissues and in transplant there's a lot of work these days to do what we call normothermic perfusion, which is to pump warm oxygenated blood through an organ. And that might extend the preservation time of an organ for a day or two, but you still only have a couple of days in order to get the organ in. Islets, on the other hand, you can culture for a few days, but when you go beyond a week or two, they start to lose their function. And so there really isn't a good long-term culturing or, or cold preservation method for, for islets. Um, if we go on to slide four, and actually I'll just go ahead and skip to slide five. You mentioned tardigrade earlier. Um, what we can do is we can take some cues from nature to figure out how, how we might be able to cryopreserve tissues. And nature has discovered lots of different ways um, to, to do so. Tardigrade is one example where you can basically dehydrate your body or the tardigrade body and remove all of the water and so that if you don't have any water in the system, then you can't form ice. And ice really is the enemy that we, we seek to avoid in cryopreservation. For the most part, you either have to avoid ice, as, as we'll, we'll talk about doing, or do what uh, in the bottom left, if you see the wood frog, the rana sylvatica, that, um, that's a, a species that's adapted to cold weather environments, and it can survive freezing down to minus 20 centigrade or even lower for short periods of time. And the way that it does it is it modifies the biology of its cells. It changes the composition of the of the lipids and the and the cell membranes. It, it accumulates an antifreeze or urea in the blood, and but but about two thirds of the frog can freeze completely, and then when it warms back up several months later, it can come back to life. And so, it's adapted another strategy, which is not necessarily avoiding ice, but figuring out a way to manage the ice so that it it's in the blood vessels and not in the cells. And so one of the main strategies is either avoiding ice, and the second one is, the, is to manage the ice. Um, if we go on to slide six, this is the traditional way that 
we cryopreserve things. If if you've been in lab and you've tried to cryopreserve cells in a, a cell line or whatever, what you do is you take those cells in suspension, you mix in some cryoprotectant agent, and that's something to stabilize the cells, usually DMSO, uh, and then slowly cool them uh, at about a degree per centigrade, a degree centigrade per um, per minute. What starts to happen is that ice forms outside of the cells. And as ice forms, whatever solutes are left in the solution surrounding the ice becomes more concentrated. And, and so the, the process continues to, to ice expand and then the remaining channels of fluid become more and more concentrated with solutes. And what that does is draws water out of the cells. You can see that in C in the middle of the figure. And then the, when the water leaves the cells to sort of equilibrate the high concentration of solutes outside the cell, it dehydrates the cell and shrinks it. So now the concentration of solutes inside the cell is higher, and that inhibits ice formation inside the cell. And so it eventually would get to a point when you, you essentially don't form ice in it. And we call this conventional or slow cooling. Uh, ice is formed, but the ice occurs outside of the cells predominantly. Um, and it, it's tolerated by cells in suspension, but not by cells in aggregates. The problem is the ice is damaging in itself, but also you can form fractures and things like that to destroy the aggregates. It's more of a problem with organs where we can crack organs than it is for say islets, which is a cluster of a few thousand cells, but it's still an issue that we haven't been able to overcome with cryopreservation or conventional cryopreservation. People have tried for decades to cryopreserve islets because of this. They would like to pool multiple donors and then do the transplant or do the quality controls like I mentioned. Um, and they haven't been successful, and that's partly due to the injury from ice, but also due to the injury from the, the cryoprotectant agents that, that people use. And certainly anybody jump in with questions as, as you, as you, if you have them. But So one strategy that's, that we've known about for decades, um, really about 50 years maybe now, um, is instead of freezing a sample, it's to vitrify it. And vitrification is basically to turn a liquid into a glass-like state. And now we're looking at slide seven. And what you have is a, a phase diagram on the left of, of water and then sort of a schematic on the right of what happens. And so the details about the schematics are not important, but basically what we know is that as you cool water or any other liquid, when it gets below its freezing point, or it's actually its melting point is a more appropriate term, uh, you have the tendency to form ice. However, we know that there's a range below the melting point where it's the, the fluid still remains liquid. We call that a supercooled state. And we know that if you take a bottle of water, you put it in the freezer, there's a period of time when it won't form ice unless you shake it up. If you shake it up, it'll rapidly form ice. And the reason for that is it's energetically unfavorable to undergo the phase transition from liquid to solid. It requires an activation energy to overcome that. And so at, at what we call high sub-zero temperatures, so that's a minus 10 degrees centigrade or something like that, water really doesn't want, it eventually will form ice, but it'll just take a long time to get there. As you go lower and lower in temperature, the activation energy is reduced, and you finally get to a point where it'll spontaneously freeze. And that happens you know, somewhere around minus 40 degrees centigrade. However, if you go down in temperature really, really fast and you can avoid forming ice while you're cooling, 
eventually you get to a place at around minus 120 degrees centigrade where the viscosity of the liquid becomes too high for the molecules to rearrange and form ice or to form a crystalline structure. And that's when it transitions into what we call a glassy phase or an amorphous solid. So essentially what you have to do is you have to go from zero degrees centigrade to minus 120 degrees centigrade at a rate that's too fast in order to form ice. And, um, and if you get down there, you end up a stable state where it's a glass, and so it's a little bit brittle, but you don't have the destruction formation of crystals. And at that low temperature in liquid nitrogen, say, or at a minus 150 degree freezer, things you could store theoretically indefinitely. Um, the problem is, in order to get down to that temperature without forming ice, you have to cool incredibly quickly. For water, that's around a million or 10 million degrees centigrade per minute. And that's just too fast to, to be practically achieved. What you can do, though, is add things into the solution that inhibit ice and lower the rate that you need to cool. That's the rate that you need to cool is called the critical cooling rate. So you have to cool faster than that critical cooling rate in order to get to a vitrified state without forming ice. The opposite is also true. Once you get to a vitrified state, you have to rewarm that liquid, the vitrified state, to above the melting point even faster, about an order of magnitude, one to three orders of magnitude faster, uh, then you had to cool it in order to avoid ice actually while you're heating because now you start at a low temperature and the system really wants to form ice. And so that's the trick is to add cryoprotected agents and have fast cooling and then subsequent rewarming to avoid ice transition. And that enters and we call the vitrified state. And on slide eight is a picture from a colleague, uh, Greg Fahey, that showed this in the 1980s that if you're able to cool a liquid, in this case it's a, a rat kidney, you can see on the right, uh, you can see through the liquid around it because that's a, a vitrified kidney. It's encased in, in, in glassy fluid rather than the frozen one on the left, which you can see is, is discolored. And we wanted to do that for, for islets for many decades, knowing that this could, be, this could happen. The problem was that you had to add too much cryoprotectant agents, too much of those preservation solutions, which themselves were toxic. So either you had to add a ton of the CPA to, to prevent ice formation, or you had to cool and rewarm really fast. And no one was able to achieve all those things at the same time. Um, in slide nine, we have a, we, they were talking briefly about the development of crowd protective agents. And this is really just to show that there's a, a number of different compounds that can stabilize uh, the liquids in these crowd protective agents. DMSO is the most common one, but ethylene glycol, propylene glycol, all sorts of different mixtures that are penetrating and non-penetrating, meaning some that go across the cell membrane and some that don't. And what we actually end up doing is we end up using them in combinations. If we look at one on the bottom right called M22, that's a, a compound of agents that includes DMSO and ethylene glycol and a bunch of other agents. And that changed the critical cooling rate from millions of degrees centigrade to minute to 0.1 degrees centigrade per minute. So now you get to a point when you can, you can actually enter a tissue, biological tissue, into a vitrified state by cooling at reasonable rates and subsequently rewarming it. The problem with those agents, again, is that they are, they are too toxic and the islets themselves don't like it. They don't respond afterwards. And if we go to slide 10, you'll see what is basically the, the crux of the problem is that you need to add more CPA in order to avoid ice, or you need to improve the heating and cooling ability in order to avoid ice. And so you have to get a compromise of, of 
the toxicity from the crop protectant agent solutions and your ability to avoid ice by cooling fast and rewarming fast. And that's sort of the, the balance that we need to achieve in all of these different tissues. And then slide 11, we begin what we sought to do for, for, for pancreatic islets. And people had tried to vitrify pancreatic islets and they tried conventional means for cryopreserving them. And what people were able to do is either cryopreserve them with high viability, but in very small numbers, or to do it with agents that you couldn't use in humans, or to do it but lose a lot of islets in the process. And no one had really been able to achieve the combination of high viability, um, clinically approachable, so FDA approvable means, scalable and functional islets in, in one method. People could do one of those four things, but no one was able to really uh, combine them all into a, a clinical protocol or scalable protocol. And so we sought to try and do that by applying some of our, our methods. And the first thing we needed to do was figure out how we were gonna rewarm them, how we were gonna cool them and rewarm them. And we started out by doing droplet vitrification, which was we would use a 3D printer and print, um, or just like an inkjet printer, and suspend the islets in, in cryoprotectants and then print them directly into liquid nitrogen. The problem with that was that the liquid nitrogen vaporizes as it, as it gets warmed up locally as that droplet hits it, and it undergoes what's called the Leidenfrost effect, which is it forms a vapor around it, just like when you sprinkle water in a hot pan, it sort of bounces around because it vaporizes. That same thing happens when you print a droplet uh, into liquid nitrogen. It forms a vapor that insulates it and slows down the rate of cooling, and so you don't get fast enough vitrification uh, to form a to cooling to form a vitrified state. You can add various CPA compounds. In this case, on the left, you see uh, ethylene glycol and DMSO with some sucrose as well. You see the little droplet on the left. That's a vitrified glassy state, whereas if you just use a salt solution such as PBS, when you print the droplet into, into liquid nitrogen, it, it vitrifies, forms ice crystals. So we're able to, to work around different ways to, to overcome that Leidenfrost effect. So we couldn't print directly into uh, liquid nitrogen, but we could print in copper dishes that were floating in liquid nitrogen. And, and we were, did a pretty good job at forming little droplets that contained islets. But then we had to figure out a way to rewarm them. And we tried all different kinds of ways to do that. So we had all these islets and, and little, little BBs or little marbles, if you will. An example of that is on the right. You can see the islets are the little cloudy things in the sphere. And we tried things like directly dropping that sphere into warm media. And that worked okay. It could heat at about uh, 15,000 degrees uh, centigrade per minute. Um, but it wasn't perfect. Uh, and we were seeing not great viability. So we switched over to a different thing called laser rewarming, where around those islets, we put a, a bunch of gold rods that absorb energy and then we'd shoot a laser at it and the laser, the gold rods would absorb energy and heat from within that droplet and we could heat really, really fast. The problem was that the, the irregular surface or the rounded surface of the top of the islet, or top of the, uh, the droplet it refract, refracted the, uh, the laser beam and so you got uneven heating where you had dark zones and light zones and so that didn't work because uh, we lost out, we lost about 20% viability uh, because there was a in, there was an homogeneous heating. 
So then we switched to what we're what we're talking about now, which is our, our most recent thing. We call it the cryomesh. And this is the, from our, our paper, basically a summary of the, the sort of the whole process. And what we do in, in, in the top left in, in um, figure A is talking about how we get our islets and the islets that we got for, we used for this study. And we use multiple different species. We use pig, mouse, human islets, and we also use uh, stem cell islets, stem cell derived islets. So starting from human embryonic stem cells, we matured the cells up to, uh, to a beta cell, so the instant secreting cell cluster. It's an islet-like structure. So we tested all different types of species. We've also done them in non-human primates and other species, and it all seems to work. We work to try and balance that issue of toxicity of the CPA solution, now we're in the middle, versus our ability to heat and cool fast. Uh, and so we worked on the technology. Uh, and then we sort of developed some methods and used some other people's methods for analyzing them afterwards in terms of the viability and morphology, the metabolic health, how they did in vitro and how they did in vivo as islets. And on the bottom, we, we sort of summarize the basic methodology. What we do is we take this, the islets and we put them in a CPA solution. A CPA solution is, is a very concentrated solution. And so you have to add it in a stepwise fashion. So you start, you increase the, the concentration up slowly or over a period of time, which we had to optimize. And that's the orange solution around the islets. The islets are little clusters in the bottom of the tube. Um, with that though, if you try and vitrify that, there's too much liquid around it. And so it slows down the rate of cooling. So what we, what we did was we used something that we developed for cryopreserving Drosophila, which is basically we took those islets that were then loaded with CPA, we put them on a, a nylon mesh, um, and then that allows us to sort of blot away the extra cryoprotected agent solution. And you can see on the bottom left where the islet sort of goes from having a bunch of solution around it to the islet just having a small little, a small little residual amount uh, and so that lowers the thermal mass incredibly. And so you can take that whole thing and then dip it in liquid nitrogen. The islets stick to the mesh. They vitrify in place because the, the, cooling and, the cooling rate is incredibly fast. And then the reverse is also true. You can just take it out of the liquid nitrogen, stick it back in media, and then they rapidly warm back up. And with that, we can achieve really fast cooling and rewarming rates. And from a theoretical examination of, of what people have done in the literature, able to see where we were able to be successful and other people's were not because we're able to, to cool faster than the critical cooling rate and warm faster than the critical warming rate uh, to avoid ice and we think that other people failed in this attempt because they were either too slow or they didn't have enough crap protectant aging so um, we'll just sort of skip right to uh, to slide see, I can't even see my slide numbers um Slide with the microfluidics, it's slide 15. Um, so one of the challenges first was to, to figure out how we can get the CPA solutions in and out of the, of the islets because they're fairly highly concentrated. And so we did a combination of, of modeling uh, for, for mass transfer and then also empiric measurements about the, the, the behavior of the islets. Because the, when you take an islet and you put it in a concentrated solution, it shrinks because it's in a hypertonic solution. But then the cryoprotectant agents diffuse into the cells themselves and then the cells shrink back towards the original state. And so by modeling the amount of shrinking and swelling, we were able to sort of predict a zone of safety where the islets didn't shrink too much and then didn't swell too much either 
when we took the solution out. So we developed a protocol uh, that we could load and unload the outlets with a crowd protecting agents. And then we had to test a number of different agents to try and figure out which had the ability to vitrify the, or the, the islets without having too much toxicity, without going into too much of the details. In the bottom center, you see basically our, our standard assay to look for viability of islets. And so this is an, these are pictures of individual islets uh, looking at CPA only, that's the cryoprotectant only, and then VR stands for vitrified and rewarmed. So islets that have been vitrified to a vitrified state and then rewarmed. And we stain with acridine orange and propidiumiodide. And so green cells or teal cells are live and red cells, propidiumide are dead. And you can basically see that you have a mixture of live and dead cells. And by, by mixing different compositions of different compounds and ratios and different agents, we found that by using 22% ethylene glycol and 22% DMSO, we were able to find a cryoprotectant that allowed us to vitrify without forming ice and with minimal toxicity. On the bottom right, you see we get toxicity, we get CPA uh, islet viability that's about 90% or so uh, relative to control, which, which we thought was adequate to move forward. So we used ethylene glycol and DMSO as our cryoprotectant for the rest of the study. If we go to slide um, 17, we see after vitrification rewarming uh, what the cells look like. And again, in the middle, it shows the viability assays. We can see we look at mouse, uh, stem cell-derived islets, pig islets, and human islets. And you look at the, the left column in the center, those are the live control, almost all green. In the middle is the vitrified and rewarmed. Those are essentially all green with just a few red cells around the side that are dead. And on the right is the conventional cryopreservation methods that people have used for decades. And you can see a lot of red dead cells uh, showing that we, we lose a lot of viability. We examine these by light microscopy on the left, electron microscopy on the bottom left, and a number of different assays. And basically what we see is about 90% viable cells uh, after the cryopreservation and, and rewarming. We can see that the, the mixture, there's a mixture of apoptosis going on in the cells and also some necrosis, meaning that there's mechanical death and also some intrinsic cell death through the, the cellular processes that lead to cell death uh, through a number of different stains, including a tunnel stains and annexin stains. Um, if we go to slide um, 19, we'll see that if we compare the viability, of the islet has a number of different cell types. It has beta cells that secrete insulin and alpha cells that secrete uh, other agents, other other hormones, and things like that. What we found is that all the cells were uh, equally susceptible, e equally viable. That is, so that the viability remained, um, uh, you know, eighty to ninety percent, irregardless of which which of the cell type. And so we knew that the beta cells were likely to be viable. And if we go to slide twenty, we look at the uh, staining with TMRE, which is a stain for mitochondrial health. And on the left, you see the red staining. Uh, if you go across, and we'll just look at the mouse islets. Uh, the mouse islets in the, in the top left, that's a live control. The red is a stain that shows healthy, um, healthy mitochondria within the islet cells. And the middle is vitrified and rewarmed. And you see also those are quite red um, and, and show good fluorescence intensity, suggesting those are alive with adequate mitochondria. And on the, on the right, right row, um, sorry, the right column, you see a very uh, lucent or dark lucency in the center, suggesting the, cryo, the conventionally cryopreserved islets lose their mitochondrial function, and that became true over time. In slide 21, I show briefly that these cells have normal um, respiration. They consume oxygen. 
Uh, this is a seahorse assay to look for that sort of the cellular mechanisms for ATP recovery. And we can see through all different panels of, of treatment that, uh, that the islets consume oxygen for production of ATP and they have an adequate spare function. Uh, and they appear to be very similar to control islets. So on the left, you see the curves of a seahorse assay, which measures oxygen consumption in, in, uh, in response to a number of different stimulants. And basically, you can see the top two uh, curves are the control islets and the vitrified and rewarmed ones. The bottom ones are the conventional cryopreserved ones and dead islets. You can see that there's a significant difference. And so the islets appear to be normal in terms of their metabolic function. We go to slide 22. This is glucose stimulated insulin release assays. The short of it is this is if you take that if you take the islets after vitrification and rewarming, you put them in low glucose solution and you measure how much insulin is released. And then you move them over to high insulin solution, uh, high glucose solution, and see if they increase the amount of insulin. You can see that we get uh, what is called a, a stimulation index of, of greater than two, which means that they, the islets secrete insulin in response to high glucose in an amount that's the same as uh, fresh control islets. And we see that for mouse on the left, stem cell derived human islets on the right in the middle, and human islets in the, in the, on the right. So we show that they, they function in vitro. Finally, we show in slide 23 what happens in transplant models. So this is a mouse transplant model where we take uh, black six mice, we make them diabetic, chemically diabetic. Um, and so we start out with a blood sugar, the normal blood sugar of a mouse is around 100. We treat with these agents to kill off their islets. And then so all the, all the islets all the mice start with a blood sugar around 400 or 450 that are diabetic. And then we transplant the islets under the kidney capsule. And what we see is if you use conventionally cryopreserved islets, that's sort of the teal color on the upper part. You can see they, the blood sugar drops a little bit to around 300, but never really fully cures the islets down to 100. On the bottom, you see a series of curves that are overlapping, which is essentially showing that the when we transplant these vitrified and rewarmed islets, uh, that they, they normalize the blood sugar in the diabetic mice within a day or two, and they stay, in this case, we tested for 150 days, the blood sugars remain normal with excellent glycemic control. We can store them for an hour, a week, a day, or in this case, uh, up to nine months, and they all function really well in vitro, or sorry, in vivo. Um, we did another series in slide uh, 24. We tested uh, human islets as well in a, in a xenotransplant model. We didn't try to normalize diabetes, but we showed that, that these islets secrete insulin in response to glycemic challenge, uh, and that they, the, the appearance on the left is called a glucose tolerance test, where we inject um, uh, glucose, and we see that the, 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 the blood sugars rise, and then they fall back down to normal values with, with uh, the same course that the control islets do. Slide 25, we show uh, some immunocytochemistry of fluorescence microscopy, confocal microscopy, showing that the transplanted islets after cryopreservation uh, express insulin and glucagon, uh, and they seem to be, uh, they have the same appearance as, as the fresh control islets after transplant. Finally, in slide 26, we show the, the recovery. We were transplanting in small batches. We would do, we would preserve 400 to 2,000 islets, and we would get 90 seven percent recovery so we got almost all the islets back you know with viability that was 92 percent we increased to 2500 or 10,000 islets per test 
the viability, the recovery re was reduced a little bit to 92%, but the viability remained high. Uh, and right now we're working on the next step, which is scaling this up to a higher throughput system. And we think we'll be able to, to cryopreserve uh, islets and batches of hundreds of thousands of islets. Uh, and we think that that will finally achieve a sort of a clinically meaningful amount. So this was uh, on slide 28, sorry, 29. This was a lot of people involved, both at University of Minnesota, where I'm at, at Mayo Clinic, where our collaborators that produce the stem cell-derived islets are. And I draw particular attention to John Bischoff, who's my close collaborator in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. And we work, our labs have essentially joined in all this crowd preservation research. And it's really been a quite rewarding thing to have the mixture of engineering that he's a specialist in and, and some of the more biological aspects that I focus on. And it's really been quite productive. And the final slide in slide 29 is a, is a bit, of, bit of an advertisement. As I mentioned, we were quite fortunate in our fundraising. We've gotten several R1s, and finally we got an engineering research center grant from, the, from NSF. Uh, we have multiple institutions now with multiple targets for cryopreservation. And showing around the side, at the top we, of the circle, we see cell therapy, which this is an example of uh, tissues and organs we're working in quite actively, but these cryopreservation technologies that are based on vitrification have broad application in, in a lot of different things, such as in coral for maintaining biodiversity, uh, in, in, in food stocks to cryopreserve shrimp, shrimp stocks for, for uh, aquaculture. There's quite a lot of, of application of these in a, in a diverse field, range of fields, and this is just, a, just one of those many. So with that, I'm happy to answer any questions that people have. Wow, that's so impressive. Uh, it's a really wonderful work. And yeah, you said that most work. So um, maybe to answer a question that maybe a lot of people have. So how many of these islets, again, would you need for a patient to to basically have a um, insulin level that is that they would need any um, you know, injections or so of insulin and um, how, how many would you, so you would get that from donors, I guess. Um, how, how many donors would you then need for one patient or, or is one donor enough? So that's an excellent question. So in the field of islet transplantation, there's a general estimate that you need about 10,000 of what we call islet equivalents. Islet equivalent is essentially an islet, a, that normalized to a standard size, which is 150 microns. And so you need about 10,000 islet equivalents per kilogram of recipient body mass. So a 70 kilogram person, we would estimate needs about 700,000 islets. The human pancreas contains, depending on the size of the person, around a million islets. The problem is that the isolation efficiency is, is quite low. And so a typical yield of islet ice after an islet isolation might range from 200,000 to 300,000 islets in a, um, after an isolation. So you would need two or three donors worth of, of islets in order to get people off of insulin. Some centers are better than others at isolating islets. And the main goal about this would be that you could isolate islets and start to you know put them in a bank. Essentially, you'd have a, a freezer full of islets. 
and you'd pick which ones would be the best for any one recipient. You could pick, you know, islets that are matched for HLA molecules uh, and, and assemble enough that you could have to get someone off of insulin with one procedure rather than multiple procedures. And would you be able, well, let's say, yeah, let's say you get diabetes, like age-related diabetes or the later onset type 2. Um, I don't know if there's much genetic indication or, you know, how, how precise the gene sequencing data is to uh, predict diabetes, but would it be possible in the future to isolate as a young person a few isolates, grow more of them, and have basically your own bank storage of isolates? Sure, that's an excellent question. I think in order to isolate islets, you would need to take out part of the pancreas, and that's quite a big operation to, to do. Um, so it probably wouldn't be something you would do with that sequence of events. But what you could do, as, as you all are aware, our, our ability to isolate or to induce stem cells, iPS stem cells, so taking mature cells, de-differentiate them to a stem cell-like phenotype, and then re-differentiate them into a, a beta cell, which is the insulin-secreting cell, is, is gone, is, is made significant progress. And so you could imagine where you might take stem cells or even cord blood cells and, and develop them into islets and freeze them uh, for, for later use. That's mainly, I think, where, where it might go if you're going to do an autologous transplant um, by, by regenerating islet cells. But you still need to preserve them in order to make sure that they work, and that's one of the things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, how long can you preserve them? Do you know? Is there a limit? We've, we've done it for nine months, and we theoretically we think that the preservation should be indefinite as long as you don't um, gradually lose water or the liquid nitrogen doesn't disappear or you know, cosmic radiation eventually will affect the, um, the, the DNA stability. But uh, theoretically, the storage is indefinite. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Uh, please go ahead with your questions. Really amazing work. Um, I'm curious, in the scale-up, um, what were the problems that you're seeing between 2,500 and 10,000? You mentioned earlier organ fracture and, or, you know, what, what are the barriers to scaling at this point? So one of the really nice things about this is because the way we, we, we preserve these, the basically the eyelids are put on this mesh and it's basically, you know, a woven material that's, you know, it's nylon essentially with a pore size, it's 36 microns or something. And Theoretically, you can scale unlimited. There's, you're not really limited in your X and Y dimension because it's sort of a, a, the islets are, you know, they don't stack on top of each other. So you can just make bigger and bigger meshes. The problem is when we started to scale up, we weren't really quite ready to dip the mesh all in the liquid nitrogen all at once. And so we think we were a little bit slow in getting the, all of the islets down into liquid nitrogen. So it was just a practical matter about how to logistically do it. And right now we have a postdoc working on this now, um, trying to make different ways you would do it where you can make sort of stackable meshes and do in, in a small volume, do lots of different meshes and, and, and do lots of islets at once. And so it's more of a mechanical and practical thing rather than a, a physical limitation. 
Oh, I see. You're just, you don't have this mountain of insurmountable failures. You're just, just getting to it. This just point. getting to it, yeah. Okay, wonderful. Um, just one other, like, sort of esoteric side question. I, on, on the, the cryoprotectants, I, um, I noticed Traolos was, was one of them. And I remember uh, a scientist from, at the FDA gave a talk and was looking, was really interested in Traolos as a cryoprotect. Have, have you, um, have you explored the space uh, with your protocol or, or do you really just nailed the ethylene glycol DMSO mix? So we, we got the ethylene glycol and DMSO to, to work. And so I think it's, it's working really well. DMSO people are, are, you know, there's a, it's discouraged in general because it does penetrate things. And, but we use it clinically all the time for, for preserving stem cells. And so when we do stem cell transplants, if, I don't know if you go through a bone marrow transplant unit, it, it kind of smells because all the patients have got cells they got with DMSO and the people smell. I mean, they'll, they'll admit it. You walk around and you'll, you'll, you'll notice it. Um, Trelos is a really interesting agent because it has, it's as really phenomenal properties in terms of being able to vitrify. It's really quite an excellent cryoprotectant. Um, and we, it's a non-penetrating CPA means it stays outside of the cells, which would be good to reduce toxicity except that it doesn't necessarily prevent ice from forming inside the cells. And so you need to do something also that penetrates the cells and gets mm. to the middle of the cell. The other two limitations about Trelose is it's hard to come by these days. It's hard to order it um, because a lot of people are working on it. And it's a, it's a lot more expensive than things like sucrose. And so sucrose also works uh, as, a, as a good extra, extracellular cryoprotectant as well. And it's a lot cheaper. I see. Thank you. So thank you so much, Doctor. Absolutely fascinating work. And my question from you is about uh, you just mentioned about the size that you needed, and I know that in part of the paper you mentioned about more than hundred thousand. And in the same time, we are considering the islet quality control um, and the function of the single patient unit, as you just mentioned. So my question is about the requirement for the patient, I mean, actually recipient preconditioning, because we know that some of the patient, um, it's, they might, I mean, have a kind of infusion or they are dealing with the immunotrophy. So I was just wondering, do you have any further information around the HLA matching and those kind of information that you can share with us? Sure. So this this really parallels what we what goes on in other areas of transplantation, organ transplantation, kidney and heart, liver and, and, and the like. You know, when an organ donor becomes available, it becomes it's it's irregularly available in an unpredictable way. And you don't necessarily know what the HLA type is going to be ahead of time because you know whoever dies dies. And so you basically have to make a at the moment decision whether a particular donor is appropriate for a particular recipient. And just in the way that we do a kidney transplant, we get an offer, we look at it and we say, is this a good enough match for this recipient? If it is, we bring them right in, their organ comes, we do the transplant right away. If we could cryopreserve kidneys, or if we could cryopreserve islets, it would really change the organ allocation, both in policy and practice, because now you could pick that HLA matched donor to better match the donor and recipient. 
you could better prepare the patient. So, you know, rather than them getting a call in the middle of the night saying come in the morning for a transplant, you could say, okay, we're going to do a transplant on, you know, July 5th and, and uh, you know, make sure that they're in good, good shape for that transplant and reschedule if needed. Um, and it changes the procedure from a nighttime one uh, when I'm offered, often operating to one in the middle of the day, which is an advantage for me in, as a personal note. And does the changing in size because uh, we just talk about the cooling and rewarming, the rewarming again. So I know that it has an impact on a mesh size and the shape and geometrical issue maybe. I was just wondering, does it relate to the quality of the, I mean, quality control of the islet cells? So part of the reason is to do, you know, quality control as, as a normal practice for islets. These days when we isolate islets, we only have a short amount of time to do our quality control assessments. Um, we can do some in vitro assays, but we can't do in vivo assays. And many of the assays take days or even weeks to, to, to get results. And so it's not practical for the fresh bats of islets to do quality control um, in terms of function. You can do quality control in terms of purity and things like that, but you can't do functional assays, at least not the not really good ones in a short period of time. And this lets you do that. It also lets you do. We, we're also going to be have some quality control issues for us to deal with as well because the islets come in direct contact with liquid nitrogen, and it's it's you can make sterile liquid nitrogen pretty easily by um, using ultraviolet irradiation or, or irradiation sources. But to remove endotoxin and things like that, it's kind of harder to do. And so we do have a, a regulatory, um, some regulatory challenges that we need to overcome for our process as well. Thank you so much. Oh, I never thought about that problem. <laughs> that the liquid nitrogen has to be sterile too. So this is an interesting thing in, in um, it's more of an issue in um, say embryo preservation. So, you know, assisted reproduction and things like that, people banking embryos and in vitro fertilization. One of the ways that people cryopreserve those is by vitrification, but they're smaller clusters of cells and they're much less sensitive to toxicity. And those, the original protocols, is they're directly immersed in liquid nitrogen. So this has been a discussion that's gone on for, for, for decades, really, to say, how do you keep them sterile, but also how do you prevent things from transferring from one batch of, uh, of embryos to the next? Because you could potentially transmit viruses if you just stored them in an open tank. And so the, there's some barrier things that need to be overcome as well. Oh, so they are all in one big tank. So um, the the issue becomes once you for say for for embryos for for IVF, you can put them in tubes, but often the tubes are not completely sealed, um, and so there's there's a concern in liquid nitrogen tanks that they're not completely sterile, and there is a possibility that you can transmit things between tubes in a liquid nitrogen tank um, that you, you, know, you see or you may have in the laboratory. Uh, and so there's a lot that goes on to try and minimize that risk or avoid that risk of, of cross-contamination, but 
this is beyond my 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 ability, but people's careers are based on these these whole logistics and, and quality control measurements of, of cryopreservation in general for stem cell therapy as well. Interesting. Thank you. I think Mona had a question and then Steve and Jake joined us. I wanted to check with you how much time you have left because I know we have in three minutes, like the hour is up. Um, I just wanted to ask you if you have time for one or two. Sure, questions. whatever, whatever people want, or if people want to get on with the evening, it's it's really I'm my okay. My Perfect. kids are quiet now, so. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, uh, go ahead, Mona. Okay. Um, yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, this is a very interesting topic. Um, so I want to take it kind of a different direction. Um, I wanted to ask about um, islet transfer and um, annular pancre pancreas. Um, is that a viable option to help islet transfers or so that there can be like like a model to see like how you guys were talking about how um, nitrogen um, is not sterile like those cases can that be like an organ to test uh, islet transfers in patients who have annular pancreas um, so so annular pancreas for for other people that might not know is is the during the embryologic development of the pancreas there's sort of two different segments. There's the, the ventral and the dorsal side of it, um, and they fuse in a normal pancreas, but sometimes they sort of wrap around in sort of a, a loop shape where there's sort of two components to the pancreas, a front side and a back side, uh, if you will. And that can lead sometimes to people to have some difficulty with the pancreatic ducts that drain the pancreatic juices into the intestine um, and can lead to pancreatitis and other, other challenges. Uh, that some people have. And now this is not a very common thing. Uh, we at, at the University of Minnesota do a lot of what we call total pancreatectomy and auto islet transplants. These are people that have um, pancreatitis, chronic pancreatitis, so chronic bouts of inflammation of the pancreas leading to chronic pain and the need for opiate analgesia. And what we can do for people, it's sort of an end-stage end treatment option is we can take out their pancreas. It's a big surgery, but we can do it. Isolate the islets from, from their own pancreas and transplant them back into the recipient. The problem with that is that sometimes we get more islets than we can transplant all at once. And so we do different things with them. We try and put them in various places in the abdomen, but I think most of those die off. And then many of the patients that get this procedure will need to have some insulin afterwards. And so this is a potential way use of this technology where you could cryopreserve a patient's own islets after they've had their pancreas removed and give them back um, in sort of smaller doses that might be better tolerated uh, over time and have a less of a likelihood that they would require insulin down the road. So that's one example of, of a use case for this. Okay, yeah, I was always curious about that because um, it seems like it it can cause those problems, but it can also remain semi-silent. And in some rare cases, uh, like one part of the pancreas can 
not function properly and the other one is kind of like protective in some manner of of preventing people from getting diabetes in rare cases yeah um, it's, it's 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 excellent you know and you might see how you might do something if someone needed a part of their pancreas removed because part of it was causing trouble but the rest wasn't so rather than getting rid of that part of the pancreas we could isolate eyelids and stick them in a freezer for that time in the future when they may or may you know if they potentially need a eyelid transplant in the future if they become diabetic yeah that's super interesting thank you I believe I wanted to check with Ryan and Dennis, you didn't get, and Victoria didn't get to ask a question, but if you don't have one, we'll move on to Steve and Jake. Um, no questions right now. Just uh, really appreciate uh, you coming coming out to speak and, and thank you for, for setting this up, Catherine. I'm, I'm learning a lot. Thank you for, for coming. Same. Thank you for the author, Katarina. It, yeah, this has been fantastic, and I appreciate the clarity that you're delivering this talk with, and I'm happy to pass on. Thank you. If you guys have questions anytime in the future, you know, it's, it's, this has been really been a fun, fun time. Like I said, it was a, this is a, this is a side project off of a side project, really, and it's, uh, it's been, it's been quite rewarding, and I think that we'll be in clinical trials with this in, in a couple of years. Uh, which is pretty quick for for something like this. Yeah, it is like really quick and fantastic that you say that you know um, that it worked so well and it, it's amazing. So congratulations again, uh, Steve and Jake. Do you have a last question to ask? Hi. Um, so no real question. Um, you know, I was I was late to the room, but listening in, I had to come up. Um, we we run a stem cell uh, room every week on Clubhouse, and have uh, uh, a couple of friends, uh, uh, a friend who was shot twenty six times and who has had extensive stem cell treatment um, over the last thirteen years, and a soccer player who had his uh, a career saved uh, with uh, stem cells after being introduced by this other guy. Um, and so the two of them have been running this room and we have two doctors there. So, and I was just, you know, excited to hear what you're having to say, Eric, and congratulations and look forward to, to hearing more. Um, but I mean, I, I was, I was also wondering if you'd like to come and join our room sometime to talk. Um, sure. Uh, I, my, my work is not too much in stem cells. I use the product of the stem cells. I use, um, eyelets that are developed from stem cells and, um, and then I, um, I also do another project to, as we mentioned in this, that one of the other downsides of eyelid transplants is you need immunosuppression. And one way to overcome the need for immunosuppression is to combine a transplant like this with a stem cell transplant, like an, an, um, a bone marrow transplant, essentially. And I, I run some clinical trials here at the university where we're doing a combination of kidney transplant and stem cell transplant with the idea of, uh, trying to wean patients off of immunosuppression. Um, yeah, I actually right now <laughs> work for a, a 3D bioprinting of uh, 3D organs or tissues from stem cells. Maybe we should talk one day. <laughs> like yeah, I used to be just in neuroscience, but now I actually 
work. I was talking actually with Ryan in the background to maybe uh, print um, some eyelids one day. <laughs> but yeah, we can talk. We can talk one day maybe about it. We we did the like we are having the first clinical trials with these three D printed products. Um, so it went faster than we expected that we went into clinical trials. So that's the good news, but it will take us maybe a while to expand to this type of cells. But yeah, uh, Jake, you waited for a long time to raise your, uh, to come up here and Brian, um, please ask your question. Oh, yes, sorry about that. Yeah, I've, uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to follow along on the um, uh, 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 presentation. I was, I've been actually shopping and I'm in the car and um, I, I just wanted to uh, thank Eric. Thank you for uh, your, uh, just your passion, uh, your, your heart. Uh, this is well beyond my my uh, outside my lane, uh, but I come from a, f a family that unfortunately just had a a history of diabetes, and I feel blessed and fortunate to uh, have my great grandparents in my life for a for quite a long while. But I did see uh, the the effects of diabetes take my great grandfather than my grandfather and how it's uh, uh, just been been assaulting my dad since uh, I was a kid and he's it's given me deja vu of when my great grandfather uh, unfortunately his health started to decline and the amputations came and you know can't miss insulin I don't know uh, you know can't can't miss taking his shots and monitoring you know, his, his glucose levels. And I'm just thankful for uh, physicians, researchers, and scientists who are, you know, really pushing the boundaries for a lot of different ailments that affect all of us in some capacity. And thank God I don't have it. That's one thing that my dad and mom have made sure to impress upon me, but just, I've been listening this whole time and I just, no question, I just wanted, if you haven't heard it before, I appreciate you wholeheartedly and, and just simply thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing your, your the family. You know, diabetes is a tough one. And, and um, the vast, actually, I'd say probably most of my patients, the largest percentage of my patients have diabetes. Uh, I'm, I'm one of my main focuses is pancreas transplantation these days. And, and it is a challenge. And, we do have treatments. Uh, the problem is, you know, what is the risk of the treatment? And and the good news is that things are changing. You know, people are doing a lot better now than they were doing even a few years ago with even, you know, closed loop pumps and glucometers and things like that. But uh, but there, we still have a way to go. Yeah, well, that was a beautiful ending, I think, to this room. <laughs> um, uh, I think we can all agree on that. We all thank you for taking the time here today to explain this to us and answering questions, but also for your work. 
Um, yeah, and um, please come back anytime with updates or other projects. Uh, you gave such a amazing talk to explain this to us in a way that we could all understand it. So um, yeah, if whenever you have time again, <laughs> please come again and we wish you all the best and that the grants keep coming <laughs> for all the projects. <laughs> well, thank you very much for the invitation and, and hopefully after the summer, I think we're gonna have a new, a new story to tell. Oh, and, perfect, and, yeah, in the fall, that, that's great. Yeah, in the summer, I won't be around much either, so not sure how many rooms we'll have, but yeah, in the fall, we'll, we'll restart again. So that's perfect, actually. Okay, thank you everyone for coming and th special thanks to you, Eric. And um, uh, yeah, we'll have again a room on Friday actually uh, this week. Um, and on Saturday, uh, if you uh, would like to come on Friday, we have Dr. Singh here talking about artificial photosynthesis systems for CO2 capture. Uh, it will be really interesting room and um, relevant for climate change. And then on Saturday at 9 p.m., you'll have Dr. Shushani. He's a theoretical physicist um, at Waterloo in California, uh, California, Canada. I'm so sorry, I'm so tired. <laughs> and um, he will talk about his theoretical physics work um, faster than light travel and time travel. So um, yeah, please join us again, follow the club and thank you so much, Eric, uh, for, you know, taking the time to come here and bye everyone. <laughs> can, can I just say something before, before you go? Oh yeah, I, sure. I just, I, Eric, I just want you to know, I did send you a message. Uh, there's an airplane little symbol on the right. I know you're new, new to Clubhouse, but it, it, if you don't follow me, it's hard to see messages. So if you go to your message system, you'll see a, a yellow uh, request uh, uh, icon button. So that's where you'll see messages from people who you aren't following yet. So it, it's a little difficult to see that. But so sorry, sorry to hold the room up closing. But um, uh, thanks. Okay, sure. Great. Okay, bye everyone. We'll close the room in three, two. Thanks one. everyone. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Good night. Thank you, Eric.